and then he's going to be back next week, but, uh, but I'll be preaching next week. Actually, we're moving into a little mini-series here on John 17. John 17. And John 17 is a, a very important passage. You know, just a few minutes earlier here, we were praying the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Actually, uh, that is the model prayer that the Lord gave us to pray. What we're going to be looking at in John 17 actually could be called the Lord's Prayer. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, in John chapter 12, Jesus is moving towards, in his understanding, moving towards the cross. Okay? Now, the disciples didn't quite get it. Jesus was explaining to them what was happening. He spoke of his death in John chapter 12. And, of course, they focused on that and not on the fact that he, what he said his death was going to be accomplishing. In John chapter 13... We see him getting down on his knees and washing the disciples' feet. And, of course, they resisted that, but he said, no, this is important for you to see because the way I am treating you, you are now called to treat one another and treat those in the world. And then in John chapter 13, he also talked about the fact that he was going to be betrayed and not just betrayed by anybody, betrayed by one of them. And then after that, he spoke of the fact that Peter specifically, would deny him. Now, you can imagine, starting from John chapter 12 and moving into John chapter 13, the anxiety level in the disciples is going up. So when he gets to John chapter 14, and he's going to teach them about what they need to hear before he leaves, the very first thing he says to them is, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. But at the same time, as he shares that through these chapters, 14 through 16, he says, I'm going to be leaving you, which, of course, they would hear and would deeply impact them. He said, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to have you as orphans. I'm going to send my spirit to you. And, of course, they don't really understand exactly what this means. But then he goes on and says, the world is going to hate you for being followers of me. But my joy is going to well up within you, and you're going to experience this joy even in the midst of the experience of being rejected by the world. Now, these messages make sense to us as we read them today, but you can imagine as the disciples are hearing these things, the the level of concern that they felt, the level of anxiety that they still continue to feel. I mean, Jesus is leaving us, but he's not going to be leaving us, but he's going to send his spirit, but we're not sure what that means but the world's going to hate us, but we're going to experience joy. All this coming at them. And Peter's over here thinking, my Lord said I'm going to betray him. So in the midst of this, as Jesus prepares to go to the cross, he prays and allows the disciples to participate, to experience his prayer with them. I don't know if you've ever been in a time of of when a person's been very sick or a person is is dying or there's a great struggle going on, there's a deep problem in the family, there's something about gathering around together and praying together that gives us a deeper sense of connection to one another and a deeper sense to the Father. And so what we're going to do is over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this prayer that Jesus was praying for the disciples. And you're going to discover this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and in that, in that passage, Jesus is actually pouring his heart out to the Father about where he is, <coughs> about his situation. And then, in the, and then in the next section, because you can break 
the prayer down into three parts. The next section is going to be praying for the disciples as they prepare to go out and become his emissaries in the world. And then the last part of his prayer, he actually is focusing specifically on us as his followers. But of course, in each one of these parts of the prayer, there's things we can learn. So let's look at John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus is praying. It says, after Jesus had said these things, chapters 13 through chapter 16, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. Father, he prayed, the time has come. Now just imagine that. Jesus understood the weight of that statement. The time has come. The time that you sent me here on earth to experience the cross, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Let's pray together for a moment. Father in heaven, I pray now that you would open our eyes by your Holy Spirit to help us understand what Jesus is praying here as he pours his heart out before you and help us to understand the difference this can make in our life. We pray this in your name. Amen. When I was growing up, Sunday mornings were always a time that I could anticipate grabbing the morning paper and reading the comics. And they were the color comics, the comics that came out in color. And I can remember the comic strip I always looked forward to reading more than anything else was Peanuts. Now, Peanuts isn't out that often anymore, you know, but, the, but you still see the Christmas specials and the Halloween specials and everything else. So most of us know who Peanuts are. Now, one of my favorite Peanuts cartoons is this one. And I'll read it to you for those of you who are up in the bleacher section. Some of you down here can read. But anyway, this is the situation with Lucy, and she is in her psychiatrist office, okay? And this is something which we see on a regular basis in the Peanuts cartoons. And, and she's obviously in interaction in a therapy session with Charlie Brown, okay? And so she says, maybe I can put it another way. So they're talking. We're coming into the middle of a conversation. And she says, life, Charlie Brown, is like a deck chair, Okay, so she's using this metaphor, and Charlie Brown says, like, a what? And she says, haven't you ever been on a, a cruise ship? Passengers open up these canvas deck chairs so they can sit in the sun. Some people, she says, place their chairs facing the rear of the ship so they can see where they've been. And then she turns and she says, but some other people face their chairs forward. They want to see where they're going. And then she gets serious. She, she has a furrowed brow, and she says, Charlie Brown. On the cruise ship of life, which way is your deck chair facing? And Charlie says, I've never been able to get it unraveled, unfolded. You know, it's interesting. What the emphasis here of this passage is, is, Charlie Brown, where are you going with your life? What gives your life meaning? What gives your life purpose? Where have you been and where are you going? 
We all ask that question, don't we? What's the meaning of my life? What's my significance? Some of us ask that question at times of success. You know, I can think of every time I've gone to a graduation and been part of a graduation, and I've walked up on that stage and they hand you the diploma, the strangest thing has happened. The question that comes to my mind is, is this all there is? After all of these years of working and struggling and studying and learning and tests and everything else, is this all there is? Is this what meaning of life is? Sometimes we ask that question when we're going through times of losses, loss of loved ones, loss of a job, loss of a hope, or maybe the rejection that we've experienced from somebody that was important to us. For whatever the reasons, whatever the circumstances, all of us in this room have times when we're asking ourselves the question, what's my purpose in life? What am I here for? What's, what's the meaning of me? What's it all about? Now, as we think about that question, what's my life about? What's my purpose? I want to introduce you to a person who I've never met, but a person who I've really admired a great deal. Oh, there we go. Those are the questions. Bingo. Sometimes I'm not exactly sure what's going to pop up. I'd like to introduce you to this gentleman. Kind of a grandfatherly looking person, isn't he? Uh, some of you are perceptive enough to see he has a white frock coat on. Yes, he is a doctor. Um, it's Dr. Vick. And Dr. Vick is an unusual individual. He grew up in a wonderful context, a middle-class home in a European family and a loving family, mother and father who cared for him a great deal, a brother and sister, a, a bonded family a secure family environment, did really well in school, very successful, went on from, from, uh, from his initial studies on to medical studies, became a medical doctor, then did a specialty in neurology and psychiatry, and uh, in his days worked with the great names, Alfred Adler and Sigmund Freud, and clearly had a, a pathway uh, of professional success ahead of him. Uh, met the girl of his dreams, fell in love and got married. And then suddenly, the Nazis took over Germany. And then they took over Austria, where he was from. And Dr. Vick is a Jew. And the next few years, he was able to practice in a very limited capacity in one of the areas that they would, they would uh, bring the Jews together and, and force them into these ghettos. And he worked within the context of that ghetto, but that's all he was able to do. Finally, he and his entire family, his wife, his parents, all were taken to the concentration camps. His sister was the only one who had escaped. She had immigrated to Australia. And so living in the context of the prison camps, his father dies from pneumonia. His brother dies working in, a, in slave labor in the mines. His mother dies in the gas chambers. And his wife dies as well. And he's liberated at the end of the war. Besides his sister in Australia, the only member of his family to survive. And you can imagine the kinds of questions he faced. And after he got out of the prison camp, 
the first question that was burning on his mind was this. I saw so many people, so many faces. What about those people who survived like I did? What kept us going? Why did we survive and others didn't? The questions haunted him until he began just spending time reading and writing about it. And he finally wrote a book out of his reflections called Man's Purpose or Significance for Living, Man's Man's Search for Meaning. Dr. Viktor Frankl. And in that book, he grabs on to a statement that he read in a philosopher. And the statement went like this. He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. And he said, this was the answer to my question of why some survived the concentration camps and many others didn't. Now, obviously, for thousands and millions of people, they had no, no choice. But for those who survived, he said, the ones who survived and didn't succumb to the depression and didn't succumb to the conditions were those who had a why to live for that bared the weight of how. The question that we have this morning is this. What is our why to live for? Really, what is our purpose in living? Is it to take care of our families? Is it to earn a good living? Is it to be comfortable? Is it to reach some professional goal? Is it to have a healthy life? What we find in the first five verses of Jesus' prayer is the why that he lived for. And the fact is, that why of his life can be our why as well. Let's look at what he has to say. For Jesus, the why to live for starts with a personal relationship with God. We see this in verse 2. He says, for you, that is, Father, you granted him, me, the Son, authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those who you've given to him. Now, there's a lot of heavy stuff in that passage, but the thing we want to bear down on is this. Jesus said, you gave the, you gave the Son authority to give eternal life. And eternal life has, that, that, that phrase has wrapped within it the idea of a significant meaning or purpose in life. Now, lots of times when we hear the idea of eternal life, we think of something which is, is basically dying and going to heaven and being with him in heaven forever. And there's truth in that because the life that Jesus gives begins now and extends through eternity. But what Jesus is focusing on here is not this idea of just pie in the sky, something that's going to happen in the future. What he's speaking about here is something which is a quality of life that actually takes place in our existence here and continues forever. And it wraps around one important significant idea, and that is that eternal life is essentially a relationship. We see that in verse 3, where Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says that is what eternal life is all about. And the most significant starting point 
of gaining a purpose in life is having a personal relationship with the living God. He says we can actually know God. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I think it's important for us to ponder this for a minute. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know anybody? I'm going to suggest, I'm going to use an analogy here. What does it mean to know Harry Truman? Okay? Now, I love history, and biography is my favorite aspect of history. I love studying biographies. And uh, the presidents of the United States, to me, have always been an interesting study. And Harry Truman was one that I've always been interested in, and so I've always tried to find out things about to get to know Harry Truman. Okay, now it started by spending time with my father-in-law. My father-in-law worked in the White House from the Truman administration after he got out of, he was in in the World War II, and after he got out of the war, he worked in the White House from the Truman administration through the Reagan administration. Okay, so he was there in the White House when Truman was there. So I would go and I'd ask him, what was it like? Now, he wasn't close personal friends with Harry Truman. He was just working down the bowels of the executive office building, you know, pushing papers and doing things. But he saw things. He knew what was going on. He had insights into Harry Truman, and he shared those things. But I didn't get to know that much about him. So I I actually went to a woman who was in the church I was working with at one time, uh, her name was Vicki Neat, and she was originally from Independence, Missouri. Now, if you know anything about Harry Truman, you know that he is from Independence, Missouri. So I, I just asked her once, you're from Independence. Did you know anything about Harry Truman? Oh, she said, my father used to be a chauffeur. He, my dad ran a, a, a garage, and he would fix cars and things. But when Harry Truman needed to be driven somewhere, he'd call my dad up, and we'd drive him places. And he said, I can remember meeting Harry Truman and spending time with his family at different points. So I got more insights into Harry Truman, which caused me then later to read this book. David McCullough wrote this book, Pulitzer Prize winning book on Harry Truman. It's a great study. And I gained even more insight into that. And then when Janet and I were living in St. Louis, we said, let's take a vacation and go over for a couple of days to Independence. And we had a chance to go through the the Truman Library and go through this house and, 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 and You see what I'm saying? I grew more and more in an understanding of who Harry Truman was. There's only one problem. I knew about Harry Truman, but I didn't know Harry Truman. I knew a lot of information about him, but I didn't know him personally. It's one thing to know about somebody. It's another thing to know them personally. And what Jesus Christ is saying in this passage is that you just don't have to know, you, you, it isn't just an issue of knowing about him and about God. It's actually knowing them personally. I can remember talking with my mother, who was in, a, in a, 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 an old folks home, and she said, the people around here think I'm crazy. And I said, why? She said, because I talk about Jesus as he is, my best friend, not just somebody off in the distance. You see, being a Christian is not just knowing about Jesus. Being a Christian means knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. With all of you here this morning, you've voluntarily, in the middle of June, come to church. I would guess that a significant number in here know Jesus personally. 
But I'm sure that there's also people in here who know about Jesus. But this idea of a personal relationship sounds strange. You may even say to yourself, listen, I'm a Christian. I've grown up in a Christian family. I've gone to church. I've grown up in a Christian country. Those things mean you know a lot about Jesus. It doesn't mean you know Jesus himself. Well, how do you know Jesus? The Apostle Paul was writing about this. And he said this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's how we get to know Jesus. First of all, by believing that God raised him from the dead. Why is that important? Because it's his resurrection which has freed us from the power of sin and the dominion of darkness in this world. And so if we don't believe that he actually raised from the dead and he is now at the right hand of the Father, we don't have the hope of true forgiveness. We haven't been accepted in the family. But if we believe he raised raised from the dead, and if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means more than just making a statement. That means believing that he is Lord over the universe, and he has the right to call the shots in our life. He is God over us. And Paul says, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord over your life, then you'll be saved. What does that mean? That means you'll have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, again, I know that many in this room understand that already. But I also know that it's possible to be in church and to know a lot about God And to not know him personally. Why? Because that's where I was. And it wasn't until someone explained the meaning of this verse to me that I understood the difference between being a person who was a churchgoer and a person who was a Christian. And what Jesus is saying in these verses is, if you want a purpose in life, it begins by having a personal relationship. A relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to have an altar call this morning and ask you to come down, but I want to encourage you that if this makes sense to you and you've never confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that he's God, that you do that this morning. That this is an opportunity for you today to know for certain that you have a personal relationship with God. It's the starting point For what the scriptures say gives you purpose in life. But it's not the end point. For the second thing we'll see in this passage is that our why to life is sustained by growing in our relationship with God. It begins by establishing a relationship, by receiving him as our Lord, but it's sustained, purpose in life is sustained as we grow in our relationship with God. Jesus says in verse 3 that they may know you. Now, we already spent time talking about Harry Truman. But you know as well as I do that to know someone is more than just meeting them and getting to know them on a first-name basis. One time on a Sunday morning years ago, I was sitting in a church, in the pastor's office in the church, and who walks in? Billy Graham. Billy Graham was going to preach it that morning. And I had a chance to shake Billy Graham's hand and to say, it's nice to meet you. That didn't mean I got to know him personally. When Jesus says, 
that they may know you. He's talking about having a sustained, ongoing relationship with the Father. A growing relationship. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like marriage. When I got married to Janet Alcorn in 1973, excuse me, 1977. Oops, sorry about that. When I got married in 1977, I thought I knew Janet Alcorn. And then we went on our honeymoon. Okay? And I can remember we're driving along the road and I'm driving a little too close to the tractor trailer in front of us. Okay? And she gets scared and says, you're you're driving too close to the tractor trailer in front of us. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm a loving, caring, compassionate new husband. No, I'm not. I'm a threatened husband who thinks his new wife doesn't quit, is questioning his competency. Okay? So we get into a little tiff there because you see, what right do you have to question my competency of being too close to this, this truck? One of the things that you have to have in order to develop a significant relationship is conflict. Okay? And this is one of the first conflicts we had. What I didn't realize was the fact that my wife grew up in a home where her father was a policeman and then an ex-policeman. And if you know much about policemen, you know that they can drive pretty crazy. And he would drive, when he wasn't on duty, in his own car, with his kids in the car, he would drive like a maniac at times. And she would be sitting in the back seat scared that she would crash into something. And so it was a natural reaction. And here she's now with the person who has committed himself to her for the rest of his life. And he's driving too close to that tractor trailer in the front. And, and she's just going to mention it to him, to him because she's scared because she grew up in a context where that was a scary experience. And she's not in the driver's seat in control. I learned some things about my wife that day. She learned some things about me. Now, you'd think, though, after 37 years of marriage, that we would know everything about each other. No, every day it's becoming a new experience of learning. So we're walking through Target back in the October, okay? And, uh, and she starts looking at this. Now, you see, to you, this looks like a common everyday placemat, doesn't it? Let me tell you what this looks like to me. This is the turquoise color of our 1957 Chevrolet station wagon when I was growing up. Okay? And I love that station wagon. And I love the color of that station wagon. I loved it so much that I would tell my friends when they'd ask me, what's your favorite color? I'd say it's the turquoise that was on our 1957 Chevrolet station wagon, which my brother inconveniently crashed. And so we didn't have it in our family anymore. But I love this color because it reminded me of my past. Because it's, just, it's a great color. So we're walking through Target. And Janet looks over and she sees these, these, uh, these placemats. Now, 37 years of marriage, okay? And she looks at the placemats and she says, you know, I'm sure you don't like that color. But that's a color I love. And I'd love to use that as an accent color in our decorating. But I know you don't like that. And my response to her was, what do you mean I don't like that? That's the color of our 1957 Chevrolet station wagon. I love that color. It floored her. But you see, 37 years of marriage, we're still learning things about each other. We're still learning and growing. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. That they may know you. That we may understand who, we, who you are. 
How does that happen? How do we grow in our understanding? Well, a growing relationship takes time and work. It takes 37 years to discover that I like this color. It takes work. It takes conflict. It takes listening. It takes understanding. It takes energy. Developing a relationship takes time and work. We don't think it should be that way, do we? We get married and we think, wow, this is just, she loves me and I love her and we're going to go down the life of bliss for the rest of our lives. And there's not going to be any issues and any problems. No, sir. It takes time and it takes work. And in the same way, it takes time and work to develop our relationship with Christ. What do we do to do that? Historically, you have what you call the means of grace. Now, if you hear that term, the means of grace, it sounds like a very formal theological thing. I think of the means of grace as simply this, ways to hang out with Jesus. So historically, there are certain ways that the church and the scriptures have taught us of how we can hang out with Jesus and work and spend time with him and develop a relationship with him. One, obviously, is getting into the scriptures, learning what he has to say about the world, gaining a a view, a perspective of life from God's perspective. Prayer is another way to hang out with Jesus, spending time pouring out our hearts, learning and growing from him, especially as we're reading the scriptures together. Another way to hang out with Jesus is to hang out with Jesus's family. One of the things that Janet had to do was to spend time with my family to get to understand the context I grew up in and vice versa. When we hang out with each other's families, we get to know each other better. And God says, come together in worship with God's people. Come together in fellowship with God's people. Hang out with God's people who are also praying and studying the word, and you'll be growing in your relationship with me. Another way to do it is by working together, by serving together. Again, in a marriage, working hard and doing things together is one way that we bond. In the context of the church, the scriptures say, come together, worship, pray, grow, share, but also serve together. And through those vehicles... We grow and develop in our relationship with Christ. And so we see that as we look for purpose and meaning in life, it begins by having an authentic, real relationship with Jesus Christ. It grows, it's sustained by developing our relationship with him in those means. The third thing we need to see that Jesus says here in this passage is that our why to life is expressed by seeking to glorify God. It's established, it's growing, and now it needs to be expressed. It's expressed to the world. It's manifested to the world by our desire to glorify God. And you see this all over the prayer, don't you? Look, Father, glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. In verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you Before the world began, we see that for Jesus, his purpose in life was his relationship with his father and growing in his relationship with his father, but then seeking to do the father's will and glorifying the father by doing his will. But you say to me, well, that was easy for Jesus. He's perfect son of God. That's no sweat for him. And my response to you was, you want to bet? You read the gospels lately? 
It was hard work for Jesus to seek to glorify God. It was no easy thing for him to be obedient to the Father's will. Look at the temptation narratives. That's only a glimpse of the kind of temptation that Jesus experienced through his ministry life. Look at the success that Jesus experienced. You know what? Success is one of the hardest things to deal with in life. We can become all caught up in ourselves. And for Jesus to continue to desire to glorify the Father in the midst of his success. Look at the times of his rejection. Having the leadership of all of his people, Israel, the key leaders plotting to figure out a way to kill him. And in the midst of all of that challenge and difficulty and struggle of living in this world, Jesus was seeking consciously to glorify the Father. You want a purpose in life? As you come into relationship with him, as you grow in him, to seek to glorify him in what you do and how you live. Not easy for Jesus. Not easy for us. Let me give you an illustration. I had the privilege for eight years to oversee a study of pastors. And I would get pastors together in small groups of 10, and we would meet together three times a year over a few years. And over that period of time, those pastors began to discover that they had a place they could be themselves. They could be honest with each other. They could talk about the things they struggled with. Do you know that every one of those pastors identified that one of their biggest struggles was being in the ministry and wanting to glorify themselves, wanting to gain acceptance and praise and admiration from, from the people they were serving. You know why I found that interesting? Because I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only pastor who struggled with that. And I was so embarrassed with the fact that when someone didn't come on Sunday morning, I felt it was a personal rejection. Or when I would preach and, and, and things didn't go right, and I felt like I was this failure and it was my fault. It was such an encouragement for me to hear that these other pastors struggled wanting to glorify themselves instead of, instead of glorifying the Father. Then you know what happened to me? A few years ago, I sat down and I had the chance to have lunch with a friend of mine named Chris Halverson. And Chris is the son of the pastor under whom I grew up. This man had a huge impact on my life, and he had a huge impact on the world. Richard C. Halverson wrote scores of books. He was one of the best preachers I ever heard in my life. He was the president of World Vision, one of the most important mercy agencies, Christian mercy agencies. He was the chairman of the board, I mean. He became the, the chaplain of the United States Senate. He literally spoke around the world. <clears throat> Yet I found out from Chris that he grew up in a home where he had an abusive father and an alcoholic father who never accepted him and never saw him as someone who had significance and meaning. And so all through his life, even though he knew that the Father loved him, even though he had a personal relationship with Christ, he struggled glorifying the Father with the struggle of wanting to glorify himself. Even on his deathbed, 
Even on his deathbed, he said to his sons, have I done anything worthy? Have I done anything of significance? And you know what they were able to do together? They were able to come back to the gospel. That he was accepted by his father in heaven. Loved by his father in heaven. And that even though his motivation was mixed because he's a human being, a broken human being in a broken world, the father was glorified through his heart of desiring to glorify the father. Father, glorify me so that I might glorify you before the world. Jesus is saying to us is the highest and best motivation of all that we do and all that we have and all that we are is to seek to glorify him. So we see in this passage that we all ask the question, what's my purpose in life? And the response is it begins by a relationship. You find meaning and purpose in a relationship, not in what you do, not in who you are, but in who you, whose you are in relationship with the Father. And as you come into a personal relationship with him, life continues to gain more significance as we grow in our relationship with him. And we find the most significant thing that we can do in this life is to seek to bring glory to our Father, who in his own way is demonstrating that he's pleased with us by allowing us to serve him and giving glory to him. Meaning and purpose in life. Now, let me land the airplane by simply saying this. I love to study family history. You know, I told you I was a history major. I love to study biography. I love to study study family history. And I learned about this guy. It's going to come up right here. Kind of an old picture. I learned about this guy. His name was William Chalmers Burns. Okay, he was a Scot and one of the first missionaries to go to China. And so I thought to myself, wouldn't it be cool if I was related to William Chalmers Burns? I mean, I know my family comes from Scotland. Wouldn't it be cool if I was related to him? So I studied and studied and looked as much as information about him I could. Guess what? I can't find any family connection. But I did find this out. I found out that he was part of a small missionary team. And you can see it. He looks kind of strange, doesn't he? Because he's dressed in traditional Chinese garb. And he spent time learning Chinese. And he became integrated into the Chinese culture. And he wore Chinese clothing. Now, what you don't understand is that the, the Westerners who came over to China for economic purposes and for colonization purposes would never be caught dead wearing this kind of an outfit. They wore traditional Western clothing. And when they saw this little band of missionaries putting on Chinese clothing and learning the Chinese language and seeking to understand and relate to the Chinese on their level, they ridiculed them. They despised them. They laughed at them. But what I also learned was the response of the Chinese. You see, the Chinese would call all the Westerners, any Westerner who came to their country, they call them Christians because they came from a Christian country. 
But they saw that these Christians were immoral. They saw that these Christians were alcoholics. They saw that these Christians getting involved in the opium trades. They saw these Christians in cutthroat business. But then they saw this little band of Westerners who humbled themselves to put on Chinese clothing, who took the time to learn their language and their culture and their customs. They didn't call these people Christians. They called them Jesus people. You see, there's a difference between a cultural Christian and a Jesus person. These are people who came into a personal relationship with the living God. These are people who were sustaining their purpose in life by growing in their walk with Christ. These are people who are seeking to bring glory to God in the way that they lived. Doesn't mean you have to be called to be a missionary. It means we're called to be Jesus people. To bring glory to him and finding our meaning and our significance in our relationship with him. That's Jesus' prayer before the Father. That's Jesus' prayer for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, so many of us have grown up in a context where Christianity is the coin of the, of, of, of the nation. It's the way that we see life because it's all we've ever seen. And yet, Lord, for all of us, you call us into a personal relationship, which is more than just a cultural environment. You call us to find our purpose in you and relationship with you. You call us to glorify you if we know you. Lord, help us to understand this morning, but not just this morning. As we wake up tomorrow, as we go into this next week of work and family and relationships, help us to understand what it means to be a Jesus person, to seek your glory, to know you, the only living God and your son. We pray this in your name. Amen.